you, Logan. Uh, we, this summer, are in a series of messages that we've just titled, Behold Our God. And we are looking at some of God's characteristics that Scripture teaches us. Last week, we were, my family was away, um, where it was cool. So we're very happy to be back with you. And thank you, Brian, Jerry, for uh, teaching us. Where is he? He fled. I saw him earlier. Thank you for uh, teaching last week on God's love. Today we're talking about God is a jealous. So if you would look at Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm sure you awoke at 5 a.m. to read Ezekiel this morning. So we were in uh, Ezekiel. If you do not have a Bible, there are some in the back at the coffee bar. And if you do not own a Bible, you're free to take one to spend time in the scriptures. Um, This is a a friendly pastoral um, warning to uh, parents of young kids in the room. The passage today uses some very strong language. And I will use this language because it's what the scriptures use. Uh, There's no desire for shock value, but we, of course, respect your uh, role as parent and your discretion on what you want your children to hear. Uh, We tend to think of God in one-dimensional either-or categories. So God is either patient or he's angry. We don't really have a filter for God being both. God is either friend or king. God is either eternally above time or faithfully present in it. God is either a loving father or a sovereign judge. God is either lawgiver or grace extender. It's very difficult to think of God as he actually is. To each and every one of those things, we would have to say that Scripture answers resoundingly, yes, to the question of, is this God? But none of those traits go as far as what we'll talk about today. We're going to be stretched beyond the bounds of the way we normally consider God. One of the most important and most common metaphors in the Bible for the relationship of God to God's people almost sounds sacrilegious to our ears today. And it's this. God wants to be your spouse. God wants to be your spouse. The creator of the universe wants to be the lover of your soul. Doesn't that sound weird? God yearns to relate to us not just as king and subjects or master and slaves or father and kids. God also wants to relate to us as a husband who tenderly loves his bride. Now, before we go any further, how does that strike you? There's lots of challenges to that metaphor for us today. Let me name just two. For starters, we can't hear that without thinking of sex, can we? So it sounds to us like God is saying, "Um, I am your husband. I want to have sex with you. But that isn't it. That's clearly not the image that God is trying to conjure up in our minds. There's no sex in heaven. Sex is the current union of husband and wife, 
which is merely a shadow pointing forward to the great reality that all believers will experience with God forever. So if you're married, enjoy it now because it won't be any later. And that's a good thing because it's a shadow, not the real thing. So that isn't what God is trying to get at. Another challenge, uh, frankly, is that many of us have no idea what a faithful, giving, sacrificial, loving spouse would be like because we've never had one and we've never seen one. We grow up in homes without fathers. If dad is there, he's more not there than there. I'm honored to have my parents here today who are a shining example of something much different. But honestly, many of us in the room did not have that example. Many of us are not married, and that's fine. Those of us that are, many of us struggle to live in light of what God says to do. So a lot of us honestly would say, I've never, ever, ever seen what that would look like. So there's two big challenges. But the picture is undoubtedly a biblical one. And God uses it because without it, there would be things that we wouldn't understand about the way he thinks and feels about us and the way he desires for us to think and feel about him. We simply would be missing an imagery that he longs for us to have through which we can know him better. So what we're going to find in Ezekiel 16 today is three things. We're going to find that God is a generous lover. We're going to find that God is a betrayed lover. And we're going to find that God is a faithful lover. He's generous, he's betrayed, and he's faithful. And throughout Ezekiel 16, you'll find the analogy is used of the city of Jerusalem representing God's people as wife, and God as husband. And by implication, it would refer to all of us who are God's people. Ezekiel 16 is perhaps the most shocking chapter in the entire Old Testament. It is a long, sustained metaphor depicting God as lover, his people as bride. It's stunning and it's graphic. We won't have time to pick apart every word, but we'll look at the main thrust, if you will. So Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 1 as we find first that God is a generous lover. Again, the word of the Lord came to me. This is Ezekiel speaking. Son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations and say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, your origin and your birth of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite and your brother a termite. Verse 4, and of your birth, on the day you were born, your cord wasn't cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor were you rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No, I pitied you to do the things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast in the open field. You were aboard you on the day that you were born. And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, live. I said to you in your blood, live. That's clear as mud. In the ancient world, men drove society, plain and simple. 
Men ran the businesses. Men made the money. Men testified in court. Men held public office. Men owned the land. Men carried all the power. Men, men, men. One of the terrible consequences of that kind of male-dominated society was the notion that sons are much better than daughters. They were much more culturally, financially advantageous. Simple and plain as that. It is well attested that at times if a couple had a baby and it was their first baby and it was a daughter, they would take that baby and lay her in an open field and leave her for whatever the elements might bring. As the father of a daughter, I find that absolutely repugnant and cannot imagine it. But there's other cultural idols in my setting, in your setting, that are much harder for me to see and harder for you to see. This was one of theirs. So God says in that setting, Jerusalem, people, my people, I came along and saw you left out to the elements. No one cared for you. No one wrapped you. No one bathed you. No one cleansed you. No one clothed you. You were nothing. Nothing. You were left merely to die. And I came along and I said, Live. Live. Everything you had no way of doing for yourself, I've done for you. My dear friend, is that not true of us? None of us chose where we were born, to who we were born to, nor had any say whatsoever in our raw genetic makeup. But from the moment the sperm hit the egg, God saw, God planned, God cared, God loved. You are here today because God said, live. And he provided what you would need in order for that to take place. No moment of your life has ever struck God by surprise. Christian, everything that has happened to you has happened for the good of making you more Christ-like. Everything ultimately that has happened has happened because God said, live. And because God is using all things to nurture you into the image of Christ. When you didn't even know God existed, when you were too young to know of His power and His wisdom, He loved you and provided for you. We are that child, that city of Jerusalem. But the imagery goes even further. Not just an abandoned little infant girl, you grew up. Look at verse 7. I made you flourish like a plant in the field, and you grew up. You became strong and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed. Your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. I spread out the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood. 
and I anointed you with oil. I clothed you with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk. I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver. Your cloth was fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty. Where did that beauty come from? But watch the rest of the verse. For it was perfect through the, the splendor that I bestowed on you, declared the Lord. Friends, God wants you not just to bow to Him as King or serve Him as Master or yield to Him as Lord. He yearns for you to experience Him as your life partner. Do you hear that in what He's saying here? This is the imagery of a man taking a woman to be his wife. It is God saying, I want to be your faithful, perfect spouse. The prophets are difficult because they use language exceedingly strange to us. Like, I spread out the corner of my garment and covered your nakedness. Do you know what that means? That means the creator of heaven and earth, the one who holds all things in the palm of his hand, says, I saw your state of helpless vulnerability. I saw your shame. I saw your need. And I loved you. Not because you were lovely, but simply because I chose to love you. It's beautiful. Covering someone with your garment was a picture of pledging yourself to them for life. God said, you're not seeking me. You're not pursuing me. You're morally filthy, and yet I'm covering your shame. I'm pledging myself to you forever. It's incredible. Verse 8 I made my vow to you and entered a covenant with you, declares the Lord, and you became mine. So the language is explicitly clear there. A covenant is a solemn promise. It's a pledge of one party to another that is for their good. Historically speaking, so if we were alive when Ezekiel was saying these words, we would have heard, Jerusalem, I came to you. I loved you as my wife. I pledged all of my resources to you. I opened my arms of care and protection and fidelity to you. I loved you with an everlasting love. Everything you have is flowing because I love you. Christian, is that not what God has done for you? Do we not share the exact same blessings and even greater? Let's use this imagery just for a moment to think about our salvation. And if you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, here's what God offers to you. Here's what is available. If you will turn from your sin, put belief in Him as Christ who died and rose again. Here's what is offered to you as a free gift. While we were helpless in sin, Christ set His affection upon us. In the language of the New Testament, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. 
So Christian, while we were lashing out in anger, Christ died for us. While we were unhappy with an apartment because we wanted a house, Christ died for us. When we dreamed of not having kids anymore because they get in the way, Christ died for us. When we turned work into an idol, giving it not just 40, 50, 60 hours, but our very soul, Christ died for us. When we looked at porn and longed to trade the wife we pledged forever to, to a digital world where you just click on a menu, getting what you want whenever you want it, Christ died for us. While we're doing good works as the means to attain accolades and admiration of peers, using people's legitimate needs for our sinfulness, Christ died for us. While we, if you have a spouse, demand him or her to do what only God can do. And if you don't, while you lustfully long for that so that you think a person can do what only God can do, Christ died for us. We bring nothing to our salvation except our sin. And God brings everything. And God says, I want you. Isn't that cool? God forgives. God adopts. God gives His Spirit. He imparts spiritual gifts so we can serve Him. And He promises us forever with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. He courts us with perfect love and then pledges that perfect love to us forever. What does this demonstrate about God? God's not like us. God is a generous lover. Everything good in our lives, brothers and sisters, flows from that, the goodness and mercy and the love of God. Your gifts, your talents, your personality, your possession, your jobs, every moment of joy that breaks through in a world riddled with pain, the pillow you will lay your head on tonight, is all from God. All of it. None deserved. All gifts of God's love. And what does he ask in return? Simply that we reciprocate love. So we don't drum it up. It comes from him. And then he says, just use it to love me. That's all that he asks. Now, that certainly seems reasonable, doesn't it? Love me because I have loved you. But we don't. So God is not just a generous lover. He's also a betrayed lover. Look down to verse 15. But you trusted in your beauty. So the thing God gave, the thing we weren't because... We chose sin over God. The the very thing God gave us, we used to betray Him. You trusted in your beauty and played the horror because of your renown and lavished your horrors on a passerby. Your beauty became His. Then He goes on to list a bunch of ways in which that's happened. Jump down to verse 22. In all your abominations and your whorings, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, wallowing in your blood. Verse 30. How sick is your heart, declares the Lord, because you did all these things, the deeds of a brazen prostitute. 
building your vaulted chamber at the head of every street, making your lofty place in every square. Yet you were not like the prostitute because you scorned payment. In other words, even a prostitute knows you get something for what you're doing. But we're not like that. We open ourselves up to sin and then give ourselves away to sin, is what he's saying. It couldn't be more stark and graphic. I warned you. 32. Adulterous wife who receives strangers instead of her husband. Men give gifts to all prostitutes, but you gave your gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come to you from every side with your whorings. So you were different from other women in your whorings. No one solicited you to play the whore and you gave payment. While no payment was given to you, therefore you were different. Imagine a prominent, successful, single businessman pulling out of his office in his Porsche downtown. He gets stopped at a red light and a prostitute comes out of the shadows. Her profession has clearly taken its toll. Strong perfume covers her unkept hygiene. She's got nowhere to shower, so she hasn't done so in days. High heels mask the shame and a sense of classiness. A short skirt and a low top invite the lustful stares she desires. With thick makeup, she's attempting to cover the bruises of her last client, a dreadful drunk. His windows are down. It's clearly not summer. And... She hears him say, all this for only a hundred bucks. hundred dollars to this guy is like a penny. It's nothing. He can have any girl he wants, but shockingly, he says, get in. They ride in silence all the way to his house in Paradise Valley. No offense if you live there or Snotsdale. Instead of violating her, He ushers her to his guest room, calls in a beautician, manicure, pedicure, new clothes, feeds her, and then brings her the best of the counseling world to women traumatized by abuse in the sex industry, most of whom began as ones abused themselves. He welcomes her into his presence, gives her all the resources at his disposal, loves her despite what she's done and what's been done to her, and then shockingly extends his hand in marriage. Months later, she's a changed woman. She feels on the inside everything that's been given to her now on the outside. She thinks of herself as beautiful and lovely. And all that he's ever asked her in return is for her love. Love me like I've loved you. I love you, so please don't return to the street. Seems reasonable, right? Along comes a business trip that takes him out of town for quite a while. She begins to forget who she is and what her husband's done for her. She gets lonely. And she longs in a bizarre way for the freedom she used to have. But she doesn't return to the street. Instead, she calls the men she used to get paid 
to have sex with and says, no payment necessary, come to my place. Here's the address. Let's have a good time. She ushers the adulterers into her very home, the very place she found new life in. And then it happens, her generous, loving, forgiving husband comes home early with flowers to surprise her with a weekend away to find her in bed with a former client. How would he feel? Not rhetorical. Betrayed. That's how God feels. Because that's what God's done for us. He's lifted us out of the filth of our sin, ushered us into his very presence, adorned us with status of righteousness before him, and then simply said, love me in return. Every time we choose to sin or choose to make a good thing an ultimate thing, in the language of Ezekiel 16, we're prostitutes returning to our former lives. Too strong? I don't think so. When was the last time that your desire for a spouse was greater than your desire to please the God who saved you, who's already pledged himself to you? When was the last time you turned away from God in anger because he didn't answer a prayer the way you wanted it, as though you knew better? When was the last time you came in this room, smiled and sung the songs, and then lived an entire week without a single thought towards the God you said publicly is yours? When was the last time you looked at some good thing in another person's life and thought, if God only gave me that, then I'd be happy? When was the last time the precious children God gave you to raise and love turned into little gods that you worried yourself about to the point you got sick? We are the horror. Maybe passages like this will make sense now. Deuteronomy 4.24. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When we use the word jealousy, we we picture the eight-year-old little girl who's mad because she's not invited to play whatever it is they play on playgrounds today. And so when God says he's a jealous God, it doesn't make much sense. But none of us think it's crazy when a spouse is cheated on. Maybe that's why God uses this imagery, because we understand it innately. God feels righteous, good, wholesome jealousy. Because he's pledged fidelity to us. And we understand that that's what makes marriage special. In a culture where there's carnage everywhere in marriage relationships, we still get the picture. Husband, wife, utter allegiance forever. That's what makes marriage, marriage. That's what makes being a Christian, being a Christian. Because God has pledged himself as husband. 
and then given us the means, if we'll rely on them, to live as wife. No sane husband would say, sure, sleep with my wife. In fact, just pass her around. Marriage necessarily calls for total commitment, exclusive allegiance, and so does being a Christian. Every time we say yes to temptation and no to God, we become spiritual horrors. And not only is that breaking God's law, it's breaking God's heart. So God's a betrayed lover. But brothers and sisters, the great news I have for you today is that God is a faithful lover. He's not just betrayed. In that betrayal, he remains faithful. Jump all the way down to verse 59. For thus says the Lord God, I will deal with you as you have done. We skipped this chunk for time's sake, but the part we missed, I'd encourage you to read sometime. What he says is, I discipline you. So when you wander away, consequences come. And that's not bad. That's good. Because for people like me, that's what it often takes. I will deal with you as you have done, you who have despised the oath in breaking the covenant. Yet, the most beautiful word in the whole passage. Yet, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish for you an everlasting covenant. Ezekiel was prophesying that despite all of Israel sleeping around with other lovers, God would fulfill his promises. He pledged love that wouldn't be revoked simply because people were unfaithful. Now on this side of the death and resurrection of Christ, we know exactly what Ezekiel was talking about. The everlasting covenant is the new covenant. It is the gospel. It's the shocking news that Jesus, God himself, left heaven, came to earth, lived a perfect life in order that he could die a sacrificial death, taking all of the wrath of a betrayed God upon himself and then rose victoriously in order that all of us who are horrors could receive the gracious love and forgiveness of God, being caught up into the family of God, part of God's redeemed people forever. That's what Ezekiel was referring to. Friends, God is a faithful lover. A relationship with God is the greatest of all privileges. It's completely undeserved, and it necessarily calls for commitment. So what is God getting at in all of that for us today? Well, it's that we don't add God on the side of life. A spouse doesn't say, every now and then, I'll be wife or husband. They understand that it it becomes a part of what you are. It becomes your very essence, the very core relationship of your life. It's a comprehensive relationship. That's what God calls us to as Christians. 
So Ezekiel 16 would say to us today, if you've never entered into a marriage relationship with God, in other words, in the language we're more used to, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't yet become a Christian, if you haven't received the forgiveness of God, if you haven't found that God is a loving, good, faithful, compassionate husband, then he would invite you to get married today. He would invite you to turn from your sin and find new life in him. To get married, not to somebody that will fail you, but to God himself. How do you do that? Well, if there is a desire in you to do that, it's because God is already wooing you. He's already holding out the ring and he's down on one knee saying, will you marry me? All that you must do is believe that Jesus came and died and rose again and acknowledge that you have ran from him And now you want to give life, your life, to him. You may have sat in this room a thousand times. You may have given more money to this church than some of us will ever make. You may have abstained from things that half the room did last night. But if you haven't received the the wedding ring of God, Christ stretched out on the cross, you don't know him. If you're in the room and you're already united with God, have you seen your sin today in a new light? Have you seen that it's not just breaking arbitrary rules, but it's sleeping around on God? Do you understand, as God's spouse, that he's brokenhearted? If so, then I want to encourage you, before you leave the room today, to repent. To again, Martin Luther said hundreds of years ago, all of life is repentance. Turning again from sin back to God. Would you do that? And then would you go beyond that? And before you leave the room, find a brother or sister in Christ and confess your sin to him or her too. Because the reality is, we need each other. We need the community of believers to walk with us Because, and if you quote me on this, it will seem really weird, but God's a polygamist. God isn't just married to one individual person, but to his people, his collective people. Wow. (laughs) We walk with God together 
or we will not continue to walk with God. We desperately need each other. So somebody in your gospel community, somebody that is discipling you or you're discipling them, or simply the warm body next to you, talk to somebody before you leave. And everyone, I would encourage you to reflect on the words that are on the cover of your bulletin as we close. It says this, Is there anything which keeps your heart or our heart from perfectly loving Christ? Let us have done with it at once. Have you gotten any habit that keeps you from living near to Jesus? Is there any favorite sin that mars your communion with him? Have you any little practice, which in and of itself may be excusable, but which for its tendency may be injurious? Give it all up. He who is poor for Christ's sake is richer than the richest of men. He who gives up all pleasure for the sake of Christ has more enjoyment in doing so than he ever would have had in the pleasure itself. That is so wise and so true. Let's take a moment in quiet prayer to reflect on what God would have us to do. Father, the question isn't for any of us. Have we been unfaithful? It's in what ways am I being unfaithful? And so we praise you that you are a husband who continually extends lavish forgiveness that you remain faithful even when we are not, that you, despite the feeling, the right and just feeling of betrayal, continue to open your arms and welcome us back. And so we pray now as a church family that we would be a people who are increasingly faithful to you, increasingly less adulterous in our sin, increasingly quick to repent to you and confess to each other and to rejoice with one another at you receiving us back yet again. We praise you and thank you for your faithful, undeserving, matchless, incredible love for us. And we pray now that for any of us in the room who are believers that have need of confession to one another that we would not treat this lightly but would share with each other before we leave. And that for any of us who have not yet found you to be the perfect husband, that we'd reach out to somebody around us and say, help me, I need to do that. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.